You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in, your, in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. The lectionary for our morning services has had us in the first epistle of John for several weeks, and I picked up on Andrew and Zach preaching the last three weeks from First John, and so took that as a cue to pick up the baton and uh, uh, help bring us to a close here in chapter 5. We'll have one more week of First John next week. That's up to that preacher. But uh, this, this is, uh, it's helpful to understand the full context of First John. It is a short letter, but I mean, that's true for everything. If you just take the passage out of context, it, it can be unhelpful. But to understand what's going on in the full letter and why it was written, this is written by the same John who wrote John's gospel. And the letter is very similar in style and some of the content to the fourth gospel. Hopefully you saw that. Even today, with the two passages we had, one from uh, the first epistle of John and one from John's gospel, this letter is written to a church that John seems to have helped, at least helped to start, maybe even started himself. And since then, a, a group within the church, you could call it a sort of secessionist group, has left the church. And that group that's left the church seems to believe that they've sort of progressed beyond the old teaching of John about Jesus, the old traditional Orthodox teaching, that they've, they've got the fuller, complete knowledge, and they've progressed beyond the old school teaching of John about Jesus. And just note that John was one of Jesus' disciples, and he's still alive. I mean, he's the man writing the letter. So we're talking about within uh, just decades. And as a matter of fact, in chapter 2... John mentions uh, that group that leaves. He, he says of them, they went out from us, but they were never of us, and goes on to call them antichrists and liars, harsh words, uh, because of the teaching uh, that they are espousing. And so his purpose for writing this letter is to reassure the remaining congregation, the, the remaining church. As a matter of fact, in ch- later in chapter 5, verse 13, he sort of gives his purpose he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of, of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things uh, to reassure you who are remaining, who trust in that traditional teaching that I taught you, because it's the only teaching that leads to eternal life. This other teaching of the group that is left does not. And uh, also throughout the letter, he addresses sort of five main themes about this group that has left. And the way that First John is written, it's, it's sort of tricky to read because the chapter divisions aren't always helpful. John is written in a, First John's written in a sort of cyclical manner. It's almost paragraph by paragraph. And he hits on these five themes over and over again. One of them I've already mentioned to you, that the group has left the orthodox traditional teaching that John has received from Jesus and has shared with them. And the second main point, which comes from this, is that 
Um, at the heart of it, and this comes out at the beginning of chapter one, that group denies the uh, fleshly identity of Jesus Christ. This is what we call the incarnation, what we celebrate on December 25th each year. They're denying that Jesus, the Word of God, also took on human flesh, 100% man and 100% God, because they have a hyper-spiritualized faith in Jesus and are denying that He was fully man. He seemed to be man, but was not fully man, as they're teaching. And because of this, this is the third thing that John hits on They deny that Christ's death has any sort of logical significance because he was not carnal. Uh, Their teaching is merely spiritual. There's no point to his death. It was merely an unfortunate happenstance. But the blood means nothing if Jesus did not take on flesh actually. And out of all this sort of orthodox teaching flow two sort of practical problems. The first thing is that they fail to take seriously sin and the commandments. You see that in our passage today. And he uses this as evidence for their lack of faith and who Jesus actually is. And similarly, finally, the fifth point is that this group has, that left, they seem to have a lack of love for what he calls the fellowship or the brotherhood meaning the church, the remaining congregation, those who truly trust in who Jesus Christ is, and that this is a telling sign that they lack genuine faith, um, that they they, um, don't take sin and the commandments seriously enough, and also they lack love for the church, for each other. At the end of chapter 4, which we had uh, before, we're in the beginning of chapter 5 now, at the end of chapter 4, we have the passage that's famously known for John's treatment of love. That's what people often think of when they think of 1 John. But John is addressing the secessionist lack of love for the remaining church here. That's the the, the main point. That's why he's talking about the love. He's clarifying that the love for the brotherhood is founded on our love for God, and our love for God comes from God's love for us, and we know that we know his love because God ultimately loved us through his son. That's a lot to take in, I know, but that's basically the sort of gist of 1 John, okay? Up to where we are now. We love because he first loved us isn't merely a sort of sentimental idea. We love because God first loved us through his son who died for us, who shed actual blood. That's what the whole thing about the water and the blood and the spirit that's sort of uh, sounds strange. Uh, is talking about that Jesus wasn't merely spiritual, but also flesh, that his shed blood and when he was pierced from the side and the blood and the water came out was real. It confirmed his death, that he actually died. Um, And so our passage today, uh, verse 1, picks up where where chapter 4 left off, that treatment of love, and it's concerned with the, the belief in this son, that Jesus is this Son of God, fully man and uh, fully God. And the word belief, you could also call faith or trust in the Greek, is pistis, which means trust, which I find to be even more powerful word, which is why I chose this hymn, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. I mean, did you catch verse 
what do you call it? Stanza two, verse two. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus just to trust his cleansing blood. His real blood wasn't sort of um, an illusion. It wasn't an optical illusion. His real blood just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood um, resonates so much with the content of our passage today. And then verses six through eight affirm that traditional identity of Jesus Christ, uh, fully man and fully God. And so the, the main point is this, that those who know Jesus Christ incarnate, fully f- fleshly, carnal, and crucified, also love fellow believers, what he calls brothers. Those who believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God are born again. You can compare that to what is in John's gospel when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and talking about being born again. Those who are born, reborn, have the new birth, also love those who are, who are reborn through Christ as well. And this belief is founded on that traditional witness of who Jesus is. Just think of the Apostles' Creed, which says, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. He actually suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried. It wasn't... Uh, it wasn't like it looked like he died. It wasn't like he looked like he was buried. It wasn't like he looked like he was rose from the dead. These things actually happened in the flesh. And so the emphasis on uh, love that, uh, is in, that 1 John is so famous for is actually specifically about love for fellow brothers in Christ. As I said, not hallmarky love, you know, I heart you. It's, a, it's about the love for the brotherhood founded on this trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's the fruit of genuine belief in the traditional views that Jesus was fully man, fully God, not merely spiritual. And this means that his blood served a purpose. Therefore, we love each other because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We love each other First of all, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God's love for us and our love for God and each other all hinge on the identity of Jesus Christ and his meaningful death. We love each other, we love God, and we keep his commandments ultimately because our faith is founded on the fact that Jesus Christ was both spiritual and flesh, both the word and fully flesh. And thus his death served as an atoning, or John uses in this letter the word propitiation, a a propitiating sacrifice that sends away our sins. It deals with it for the forgiveness of our sins. And we love because he first loved us in this way, because of the blood for us. You all are, most of you probably familiar with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia stories. Even if you haven't read that, maybe you've seen the films and are especially familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the most famous one. In that story, if you don't know it, there are four children who go into this sort of alternate dimension. And Jesus is known there as a lion, fully in the flesh of a lion, named Aslan. And one of the four children is this boy named Edmund who, who betrays his siblings and the world of Narnia by going to, um, to, uh, to, to be with the white witch who's a sort of demonic figure and to be one of her minions, as it were. And, 
in the film, Aslan brings Edmund back to the fold, back to the siblings, and back to Narnia. But reconciliation doesn't fully set in until Aslan himself goes to what's called Aslan's table, which is this sort of stone altar to die at the hand of the white witch to be killed with this stone knife plunged into his heart to the blood spill on that stone altar. And finally, when Aslan is sort of resurrected from this, Edmund, it's for Edmund's sake, he's finally reconciled with his siblings and all of Narnia because of that blood shed by Aslan. It's like that for us. That's what I'm talking about here. It's sort of an illustration of what John's talking about. And this is something uh, we see in C.S. Lewis's own life, who wasn't always a believer. He came uh, to faith about in his early 30s, um, grew up in nominal Church of England, and later comes to born-again faith about the age of 30, an academic, an author who wrote literature and both apologetics later, a, a man who studied classics. By the way, for me, uh, hearing about a man like that, I was able to resonate with, with somebody who, who really was thoughtful, finally came to faith, and he describes in this one moment, before I was a Christian, I read this book called God, on, God in the Dock is a collection of some of his essays. And one of the essays, he describes going back to church. And um, it's an illustration of what love for the brothers can look like because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. When I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, he says, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to the churches and gospel halls. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. <laughs> but as I, that isn't true here, but, you know, it was there, okay? Um, but as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education, And then gradually, my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. Here's an image of a man who is learning to love his brothers because of the blood shed in the same way that he would go on to illustrate with Aslan. The blood shed of Jesus Christ allowed him to suffer what was once insufferable uh, before. There are other things we can say about our love for God and for each other, to be sure. But our love uh, founded on Jesus Christ's atoning death is of utmost importance. It's also the point of our passage, by the way. And we're known for this love, for good or for ill, unfortunately, or positively. There is no neutral. It's either for good or for love, for good or for ill. And reading this letter and this passage truly convicts me. I don't know about you, but it really convicts me as I was thinking about it prayerfully. I want to get to know the people of my church better. I want to know more Christians around the world. I want to spend time with my fellow believers on Sunday in prayer with and for them, in fellowship founded on Jesus Christ, and to spend time with them even outside of Sunday. 
And I must say, I didn't always feel this way. As little as about 15 years ago, I either hated most Christians or found them annoying at best. Just I could resonate with what C.S. Lewis was writing here when I first read it about 15 years ago. Do you resonate with anything that I'm saying? Is there, someone, uh, is there something between you and a fellow genuine believer? Meanwhile, do you trust that Jesus Christ was fully man and that he was crucified for you? Then love God and the brotherhood and seek reconciliation now. Could you imagine if we were marked by that kind of energy? We would truly be known by our love in the way that the song says they will know we are Christians by our love. We would be known by a blood-soaked love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son as full man and full deity, that his death might atone for our sins. Help us to love and may our love for you and for each other and the world be founded on these facts. And let our love bear witness ultimately to you, bringing more and more reluctant hearts to know you and to be reconciled through your Son. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.